I have spent thousands of pounds testing marketing principles for this show, and I know that some of these principles work, but some of them don't. In this episode, Nancy Harhart and I put these principles to the test in a set of real-life experiments. You'll learn what works and what doesn't. But first, here's a podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. There is a lot of inefficiency in marketing. Being a marketer isn't like being a doctor or a plumber. It is far less reliable. According to HBR, the majority of product launches fail and one fourth of marketing budget is wasted on inefficient tactics. This is a real problem. Most marketers, like me, struggle to know what works and what doesn't. To help, I'm going to put five principles to the test and share exactly what works and what doesn't so you can see how you could apply these principles. You don't have to be a marketer to apply these principles, by the way. They can be used in all sorts of realms like fundraising emails, like trying to convince your partner to do something, like trying to lead an organization. There's lots of different ways you can apply these principles. I'm going to show how I've applied them to marketing and you can take away whatever you want. In today's show, I'm joined by the brilliant Nancy Harhut. She is the co-founder and chief creative officer at HBT Marketing. She has written the book on applying psychological principles to marketing. It's fantastic. You should really check it out. But first, here is Nancy introducing herself. Thank you very much. My name is Nancy Harhut. I am the co-founder and chief creative officer at HBT Marketing. Uh, that stands for Human Behavior Triggers, HBT Marketing. And and I recently wrote a book published by Kogan Page called Using Behavioral Science and Marketing, uh, Drive Customer Action and Loyalty by Prompting Instinctive Responses. Now, I think Nancy is easily one of the best people to help with my experiments because she has spent her career testing these exact principles. So, you know, I've been, I've been applying behavioral science to marketing for a number of years now, and I've been testing and I've been, you know, curating studies, uh, results, case studies, you know, reading other people's work. And I found that I've got like about a, a 25 or so go-to principles that seem to really work well for my clients. And so when Kogan Page gave me the opportunity to write the book, those seem to be the ones that I wanted to focus on. It just kind of felt natural. They're the ones that I speak about when I speak at marketing conferences. They're the ones that I use a lot when I work with my clients. And they're the ones that I've seen a lot of success with. All right. Let's get started. I wanted to kick off with a principle that most of you listening will know. It is the scarcity principle. Scarcity is the idea that if something is rare or if it is in short supply, it must be valuable and we should want it more. Nancy started off with an example of how scarcity can be used in marketing. You know, even even saying, you know, be be among the first to do this or be the first to try this uh, is kind of interesting because eventually everyone's going to be able to. But the fact that you're one of the first is is what's uh, what's so compelling. And there's a lot of psychological appeal there. There's a, a company called World Data. And what they do is they they measure email effectiveness. They, they look at, you know, 
billions, I think, millions or billions of emails. And um, what they found is if you have an hourglass emoji in a subject line, in an email subject line, or if you have a clock emoji in an email subject line, you can get anywhere uh, between a 22 and a 24% lift in your opening rate. And that's just a like a very specific tactical ex- example of how uh, you know, how powerful the idea of scarcity is. It's like, oh my gosh, you're running out of time. You know, there's some urgency here. I need to act quickly. And, you know, simply having those in the subject line can be enough to to boost that opening rate by double digits. Sounds simple enough, right? Just tweaking the subject line to emphasize scarcity can increase the open rate by 25%. It almost sounds too good to be true. So I decided to test it. For my test, I sent two emails to a group of my subscribers. The emails, which went to a thousand people, offered free access to my Science of Marketing course for one day only. The only difference between the two emails was the subject line. So that was how I was going to run my test, by changing the subject line. The first subject line read, free access to the Science of Marketing course. The second one, which was my scarcity version, said, only today, get free access to the Science of Marketing course, only one enrolled per person. 500 people received the first email, another 500 received the second. So, does the scarcity principle work? Well, it absolutely does. The first email had just a 55.4% open rate, but the scarcity version performed far better with a 63.8% open rate. It is a small test, but the principle clearly works. Scarcity attracted attention and got people to click. But that's not the whole story. The real value of scarcity is not just getting people to open the emails, but getting them to act. And it turns out the scarcity email helped with that too. Those that saw the scarcity version were 16% more likely to sign up to my course. So if you're selling tickets to an event or a course or selling a product of any kind, you'd be, I think, a bit stupid not to test out some form of scarcity in your marketing because scarcity is a high-performing principle that clearly works. But it is not the only principle. The next principle I wanted to test was the endowment effect. Here's Nancy explaining the endowment principle. People value things that 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 they own, that they possess, or that they feel that they own. And... Um, you know, I mean, obviously you value something that you want to acquire. That's why you want to acquire it. But once it's yours, you actually place greater value on it. The endowment effect is this evolutionary principle that has been visible in humans for thousands of years. It is even noticeable in our distant relatives, monkeys. There's a wonderful study from Melina Palmer's book, What Your Employees Want, that showcases this. In the study, researchers gave a monkey some peanut butter first and then offered it some juice. Now, what they were testing was whether the monkey would trade what they had been given first, which was the peanut butter, for the juice. So will the monkey make the trade? On average, only 21% of monkeys, so a very small minority, were willing to trade their peanut butter for juice. In other words, 79% wanted to keep their peanut butter and didn't want to do the trade for the juice. But... This isn't because monkeys find peanut butter more delicious. It's actually due to the endowment effect. Because here is what happens when you give them the juice first and then offer to trade for peanut butter. Well, now 58% refuse to do the trade. The majority now refuse to do the trade and they want to keep the juice. So when they're given the peanut butter first, the majority stay with the peanut butter. When they're given the juice first, the majority stay with the juice. 
The monkeys get an attachment to whatever they own first, regardless of whether it's juice or peanut butter, they just want to keep it. And us humans? Well, we're the same. One of the best examples I've, I've ever seen of um, the endowment effect was this wine company that sent me an email and they told me that I had a $15 credit in my account that was going to expire by 11.59 tomorrow. So they wanted me essentially to buy a bottle of wine by 11.59 tomorrow. But it was it was a very nuanced approach because they could have said, you know, hey, Nancy, we're having a sale. Buy a bottle by 11.59 tomorrow and we'll give you $15 off or we'll take $15 off or we'll send you a $15 rebate. But in, in all of those cases, the money would be in their hands, right? But what they told me was you have a $15 credit in your account that's going to expire. So that $15 was more valuable to me than you know, if they were just going to give me something, it was more valuable to me because it was already mine. It was in my account. I possessed it. And so it, it just took on, you know, greater value for me. And it, it prompted me to say, oh, I better, I better use this before I lose it. Just like those monkeys, we take action when we think something is ours. So I decided to test this with more of my email subscribers. For my test, I emailed my subscribers who were inactive. These were people who hadn't opened an email in three months. I wanted to try and re-engage them to get them to start opening my emails again. So I decided to test the endowment effect. Now, for my control email, I tweaked the subject line and said simply, is there anything I can do to improve? That was the subject line. Is there anything I can do to improve? But for my endowment variant, I changed the subject line to read, I'm removing you from this newsletter in 24 hours. The actual copy in the email was the same for both groups. It said you'll be removed from the email list unless you respond, letting me know you want to stay. But the little tweak in the subject line was crucial. One was hopefully triggering the endowment effect by making people feel like they would lose out on what was originally theirs. And it worked. That endowment group who received the email saying they were about to be removed were two times more likely than the control group to respond and ask to stay on the email newsletter. But it gets even better. This is the real power of the principle. It wasn't just encouraging people to open my emails. I was actually re-engaging them. The endowment group who were told they would be removed within 24 hours, well, they opened the email at a two times higher rate than the control group. But it gets even better because the real power of the principle was that it didn't just encourage people to open the emails. It was actually re-engaging them because those who got the endowment email were five times more likely to respond and five times more likely to stay on the email list. Now, this cost me nothing. It only took a few minutes to test and it re-engaged a bunch of my subscribers. And I think it shows the power of the principle, possibly the power of the loss aversion principle as well, because it really is linked. But clearly, this uh, principle worked in this example. And according to Nancy, it can increase not just the number of people who stay on your email list, but also the number of people who get vaccinated. There were several researchers, and I think one of them was Katie Milkman, um, but they tested a number of different ways to get people to take a vaccine. And at that point, I believe it was a flu vaccine, although they got their results uh, in a very timely fashion given the pandemic. You know, So it wasn't that they were testing it uh, for the pandemic, but they had the results and, and it could be applied. But they looked at a number of different ways of trying to get people to come in and, and get their shot. And what they found was the most effective was saying that the vaccine was reserved for for the person, you know, Nancy, it's reserved for you, Phil, it's reserved for you. Just the idea that it's, you know, it's yours. And that seemed to be the thing that actually um, 
uh, boosted uptake by about 4.6%. It, it got people to come in and, and say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to take the, um, the vaccine. And, and again, it is that, that notion of the endowment effect. It's, oh, it's mine. It's waiting for me. It, it almost like quote unquote has my name on it. Um, and I think that was, you know, that was a, a lot of the reason why it did so well. There's another example. Uh, here in the U.S., we have something called Publishers Clearinghouse. And basically, uh, what they do is, uh, you know, they, they mail all these people or email all these people, um, a potential winning prize number. And what they're trying to do is get you to subscribe to magazines, although no purchase is necessary. But, and then somebody, you know, some winning number is drawn and that person wins a million dollars or something. So they're doing some really interesting things. I, I got an email and, they really, I thought, were using the endowment effect. They told me that I had to accept or surrender my number. And um, and then they went on to say, you know, this is the number that you own or claim ownership of your number. But they were really kind of underscoring that idea that it wasn't just, you know, some random number that had shown up. It was assigned to me. It was mine. And if, if I didn't want to play, I had to surrender, you know, which again speaks to the idea of ownership. And, uh, and I thought, how very interesting. And I don't know if they deliberately were applying the endowment effect, if they tested their way into it serendipitously, uh, or if it just just happen to be, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, somebody's brainstorm. But I, I think it's a wonderful application of it. Saying this vaccine is reserved for you boosted uptake by 4%. And suggesting that you have to surrender your prize makes you more likely to act. The results, I think, are pretty conclusive here. The endowment effect works. If you want people to take action, they have to feel that the thing is theirs. The next principle I wanted to test is a very similar principle. It's loss aversion. It is the idea that humans feel the pain of a loss two times more than the pleasure of a gain. In other words, we will go out of our way to avoid a loss. Here's Nancy to explain. Loss aversion is this idea that we're, um, you know, we're averse to losses. We we feel losses twice as powerful as gains, powerfully as gains, and um, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, when, when faced with a potential loss or a potential gain, you know, people are, are more motivated to avoid the pain of loss than they are to achieve the pleasure of gain. This principle was famously studied by Kahneman and Tversky in their work on prospect theory, which eventually won them a Nobel Prize. But they didn't explain how loss aversion could be applied to marketing. And by marketing, I don't just mean getting people to buy a product. I mean encouraging folks to take action, like saving for retirement. Marketers at retirement funds are constantly trying to come up with creative ways to get us to save more. So, perhaps loss aversion could help. Uh, we were doing some work for a financial services firm, and they wanted to encourage people to um, save more money for retirement. So, these are people who are working at a company, there's a, a retirement savings program, and they want to encourage people to either enroll or to increase the amount of uh, money they were saving. And uh, so we tested a few different things, actually. We, you know, we tested the idea of um, social proof, you know, why, you know, why so many people like you were saving? Because when it comes to retirement accounts, people aren't really sure, you know, is this for me? Should I be doing it? Maybe I'm too young. Maybe I'm too old. But, you know, how, how much should I save if I'm going to say, you know, there's just a lot of question around it. So we thought, well, something using social proof, you know, well, other people are doing this. So why so many people stash their cash in retirement plans? That could be a you know, great way to go. Uh, an another area that we tested was scarcity. And the idea was scarcity of information. So it was uh, kind of, you know, do you know this money saving secret? You know, uh, very few people know how to double their, you know, their retirement savings over the, over the course of 10 years, you know, things like that. So it's scarce information. And we know that uh, when information is perceived as not widely available, 
people find it more believable. So we thought, well, that could be good. But then we also brought in some loss aversion and we tested this idea of, you know, do you, are you making this money mistake or do you make these money mistakes? Are you losing money because of this? So just to recap, there are three messages Nancy is testing here. To encourage people to save for retirement, she tested one, a social proof version, which explained why so many people like you are saving. The second was a scarcity version, which read, do you know this money saving secret? And the third was a loss aversion variant, which stated, are you making this money mistake? Okay, back to Nancy. What we found is honestly, all three of the approaches did well. The client was very pleased with them, but the thing that did the best that seemed to get the most opens in terms of the email, for example, was the lost aversion idea. You know, do you make this mistake with your money? And, um, and it, it could play both ways. You know, it, it could be, you know, are you not saving enough? You know, are you making this mistake with the money you currently have in your account? Or it could be just a, a broader, are you making this mistake because you're not saving any money? You haven't opened an account, but it turned out to be, you know, incredibly powerful. And I think that's the, the thing that's behind the idea of loss aversion is people want to avoid mistakes, mistakes, uh, missteps rather, missed opportunities. They, you know, they just don't want to screw up the way someone else before them has, has, uh, you know, made a mistake. They, you know, they, they don't want to lose out. And it can be, you know, an incredibly powerful motivator for for humans. It's hardwired into us, and um, you know, we just respond without thinking when when faced with the idea of loss versus gain. It's like I don't want to lose. The loss aversion variant wasn't just better than the standard message, it was better than the social proof message and the scarcity version. So this is clearly a high performing principle and obviously I wanted to test it out, but I wasn't sure how to test it. So I asked Nancy for a suggestion. It could be something as, as simple as instead of saying, take advantage of this offer, you say, don't miss this offer. You know, don't miss can trigger that notion of, of loss aversion. All right. This is something I can test. Every time I publish a podcast episode, I send out an email to my subscribers. So I tested Nancy's suggestion on one of these emails. It was for a podcast episode called, Is Your Growth Mindset Training a Waste of Time? You might have listened to it already. You might not. The episode, I think, is a cracker. So do go and check it out after this if you haven't listened to it. For my test, I tweaked the end of the subject line of the email announcing the podcast. So in one version, it read, listen to this one. So the subject line had the title of the episode and then at the end it said, listen to this one. And then for the other loss aversion variant, it read, don't miss this one. So the name of the podcast episode and then the words, don't miss this one. Now, I was expecting at least one of these tests to fail. I didn't expect all of them to work, but for now, my luck was holding because this loss aversion variant did perform better it increased my open rate again, this time by 17%. And it also increased the click rate, so the amount of people who actually listened, by 9%. Now, this is a small difference, but it is a difference, a difference that cost me nothing at all and only included a few words added to the end of an email. At this point, I should say that not all of these marketing principles worked for me. There was one that absolutely failed. And I'll reveal what that principle is after this quick 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. 
Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new Service Hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Now, if you've listened to the show before, you will have heard about the principle of social proof. It means we follow the actions of others, especially others who are similar to us. According to Nancy, we evolved social proof to help us make decisions faster. Social proof is one of those decision-making shortcuts that people rely on all the time. You know, we're we're asked to make so many decisions that you know we can't possibly weigh every bit of data. You know, we we. We'd be so busy studying information that we'd never actually get around to making decisions. And social proof is one of those decision-making shortcuts that we rely on all the time. If something is popular, if it's the best seller, if it's the fastest growing, um, you know, those are just all indicators to us that, oh, this is something I don't want to miss out on. This is something that I can feel confident, uh, you know, purchasing. You know, I'm not going to go wrong because a lot of other people have already done this. We can't help it. We follow the actions of others and we take the choices which are most popular. Marketers who know this can dramatically improve their messaging. Here's Nancy with a great example to explain. There was an example, um, uh, it was a research study actually done by Duke in Peking. And what they did is they went into a restaurant and they tested two different little cards on the tables. Some of the cards listed five of the most popular dishes and other cards, just they just listed five of the dishes on the menu, you know, they just kind of highlighted five of them, but they didn't really comment that these happen to be the most popular. The first version, they said, these are the most popular. And what happened is they actually became more popular by 13 to 20%. Just by saying these were popular, people just, you know, oh, well, these are the popular ones and these are the ones I have to order. It just increased their popularity. We ran a, um, a, a integrated campaign for a company that was, um, This was another one where they were trying to get people to sign up, not for um, retirement services, but for voluntary benefits. So different kinds of insurance that you can buy in the workplace, like accident insurance or cancer insurance, but the employer does not pay for it. You pay for it yourself as the employee, but it'll be taken out of your paycheck. And so there's a lot of, you know confusion surrounding that and a lot of, you know, reticence, you know, for one, people are like, well, do I even need these extra insurance policies? Do I need this extra coverage? You know, is it right for me? You know, and then there's the feeling like, oh, and if I decide that I want it, it's going to actually reduce my paycheck because the money is just automatically taken out of your paycheck to pay for the coverage that you've voluntarily elected to, to buy. And um, so it's it's kind of an uphill battle for the client to get people to um to purchase the uh, the insurance or to even consider it, and so we used some social proof. We did a integrated campaign where we said, uh, Phil, you know, guys like you in your twenties making a good living in high tech choose these policies to help protect their family. And you know, when you got that, you saw not only your name but your age, you know, range and the industry that you worked in, and you know, the idea that you're you know making a good living. And then this is you know this is what people like you 
by to protect their family. And um, it was awesome. We got a 19% increase in the take rate on these policies just because we, we helped guide people. And, and that's the thing with these decision-making shortcuts or this behavioral science. You know, we know that people rely on these decision defaults. So what we want is a win-win situation. We want something that's going to be good for the advertiser, the marketer, of course, you know, but we also want something that's going to be good for the customer or the prospect. Quick recap. Social Proof made the popular choices at a restaurant 13 to 20% more popular. And Social Proof messaging made people 19% more likely to buy insurance policies. These are hardly small nudges. They are big changes and I wanted to test them. At this stage, I was a little bored of doing email subject line tests. So instead, I decided to set up two Google surveys. These surveys were sent to 200 people across the UK. In Nancy's books, she suggests that a good way to trigger social proof is to hint at lots of people anticipating something coming. So if you're selling an event, you should highlight that lots of folks have been excitingly waiting for the event and that they're brimming with anticipation. So for my test, I asked British people if they'd listen to a new US comedian who was touring in the UK. Now, I invented this comedian for the purposes of this test. I didn't have permission to use a real comedian. So I came up with the unimaginative name for a comedian, which was Joey Jokes. So both of the Google surveys at the start read, Joe Jokes, the infamous US comic, is touring in the UK next week. Do you want to hear his comedy? However, for the social proof version, I slightly edited the start of the question. The start of the question read, he's finally here. The wait is over. Joe Jokes, the infamous US comic, starts touring in the UK next week. Do you want to hear his comedy? Now, I had hoped that this second version, which hinted that Joe Jokes was very popular and that people had been waiting to hear from him, would work better. But I was really disappointed with the results. The social proof version did not work. In fact, it made people three times less likely to want to listen to his comedy. Why is this? Well, one reason is that Joey Jokes is made up. Nobody would have heard of him before, so hinting that he's popular probably backfired. But even so, I think this proves that you should always test these principles first. Just because social proof works for insurance policies and menu choices does not mean it'll work everywhere, especially if you're a comedian called Joey Jokes. Anyway, moving from one Joey to another, have you heard of Joe Girard? According to the book The Art of Thinking Clearly, Girard is considered one of the most successful car salesmen in the world. Between 1963 and 1978, he sold 13,001 cars. He was recognized by the Guinness Book of Records as the best performing car salesperson in a year. So what was his secret? What allowed him to sell more than the rest? Fortunately, once he had retired, he told us. He said... There is nothing more effective in selling than getting the customer to believe, to really believe, that you like him and you care about him. And Girard doesn't just talk the talk. His secret weapon is a tactic that secured all of these sales. He simply sent a greeting card to each of his customers every month. And the card simply read, I like you. Now, this might seem a little underwhelming. It perhaps was for me. It, it sounded a little childish, almost. You know, the world's greatest salesperson just saying, I like you. But Joe knew that there was some science to back up this approach. It is called the reciprocity bias. 
In our evolution, we've evolved to return the favours of others. So customers who receive this card were simply more inclined to keep doing business with Joe, even if they found the card a little childish or insincere. Here's Nancy explaining this reciprocity bias. When somebody receives something from someone else, they feel obliged to answer in return. So if I, you know, sent you a birthday card, Phil, you'd be like, God, remember to send Nancy a birthday card. If if you and I went out to, to you know, to have a couple of beers at a pub and I picked up the, the tab, you'd probably think to yourself, oh, next time we go out, I've got to make sure that I buy the drinks for Nancy. You know, we, we don't like to owe people anything. We, we kind of like to even the score. So if someone does something for us, we want to answer in kind. We want to return the favor. We, we want to almost get out from the obligation. And um, that's that's the thing about the reciprocity principle is even if we didn't ask for something, if somehow we got it or we benefited from it, now we feel like, all right, we, you know, we owe the person something. We did a very interesting campaign for a financial services company. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to reactivate financial uh, planners, you know, uh, financial agents who'd been selling their product, who had stopped selling it over a year ago. So they, they used to sell this particular company's product. They'd stopped selling it. You know, 12 or more months had gone by. They'd been trying to kind of get in touch with them, trying to reactivate them, you know, trying to call them or set up meetings and they weren't really having any luck. And they turned to us and they said, you know, what, what do you got? What, what can we do? You know, can we send them something? So we put together this really good reciprocity campaign. And what we did is we sent out an email and we said, uh, hey, Phil, watch your postal service because we're sending you something. We're sending you a gift we picked out especially for you. And then a few days later, the postal carrier, you know, drops off a box and in the box is a framed New Yorker cartoon. And the New Yorker cartoons are really kind of cool. They're upscale. They're, you know, they're you know, they, they make you smile. It was spot on. It was about some little kid running around his neighborhood selling retirement services or something. So it was very relevant to the target. And your name was in the cut line. Your name was in the caption. So the one that you received would have a caption with your name in it. The one that I received would have a caption with my name in it. Um, so it was a great cartoon. It was relevant. It was personalized. It was framed. And you just know, you know, it's going to end up on the office wall or propped up on the desk. It, it was just so cool. And then there was a little note that went with it that, you know, came from the wholesaler that said, Hey, we, you know, we'd love to catch up. It's, you know, it's been a while. Uh, you know, here's my phone number. Give me a call. And, uh, you know, and you can imagine what happened. You know, people had this and some people called just to, you know, to say, hey, thanks or, you know, I got it. Other people at least took the call when the wholesaler called because how do you not? Like you're looking at the the framed cartoon that's your gift and, the, and how are you going to say to the, you know, to your secretary, no, tell them I'm not here. You know, you feel like obligated to at least take the call. So they reactivated a huge number of financial advisors, but more importantly, they traced back $68 million in incremental revenue to this specific campaign. So there's a real example of, you know, the power of, of give to get, the power of reciprocity. You know, they did, you know, the company did something for these financial advisors who had, who had gone cold a year ago and it ended up reactivating them. It was like it got them to say, oh, yeah, right. Not only did it put the company top of mind, but even more importantly, it, you know, made people feel like, oh. I owe them a little something. Maybe I should put them back into the rotation. Pretty powerful stuff. $68 million simply by using the same bias that Joe Girard used 60 years ago. Reciprocity is clearly powerful, especially in these high-cost sales deals. But I don't sell high-cost goods. I create a podcast. So to test the reciprocity principle, I created a very different experiment designed to attract more listeners to this show. 
Now, I ran this experiment a year or so back, and at the time, I had just hit 100,000 downloads for the show. To celebrate, I created a list of the top 15 tips that I'd learned over the years. I designed a unique image for each of these tips, but to see all of them, the viewers would have to sign up for my email list. Now, to test if reciprocity really worked, I decided to promote these top tips with two different LinkedIn ads. Both of the ads had the exact same copy. The only difference was in the images. Now, the reciprocity version revealed the first four tips in a sort of carousel image, which the viewers could scroll through to see the four tips and the images. They could look at the tips and then decide if they want to download the full list by signing up to the mailing list. The control only showed the first tip and then asked viewers to sign up. So the only difference was the amount I was giving away for free. The idea was the more I gave away, the more reciprocity I would trigger. After spending £50 on each of the ads, I had some conclusive results. The control had a click-through rate of 1.9, but the reciprocity version did much better with a click-through rate of 2.3. That is a 23% improvement. What's more, the people who saw the reciprocity version were 29% more likely to actually sign up to the mailing list with their email compared to the control. Now, those numbers aren't massive. In all, the ad increased my mailing list by around 30 emails, not a lot. However, it's clear that those numbers would scale if I did this on a bigger scale. Using reciprocity is a surefire way to increase the effectiveness of my marketing. So let's recap briefly. Today, I've tested scarcity and I've seen how it made folks 16% more likely to sign up to my course. I experimented with the endowment effect and discovered that it made people five times more likely to stay subscribed to my newsletter. I used loss aversion to increase my podcast listeners by 9% and reciprocity to boost the effectiveness of my ads. But I also tested social proof, which is arguably one of the most reliable marketing psychology principles, and this test failed. It didn't make people more likely to listen to Joey Joke's comedy. And I think that's an important point to end on. Just because these principles work in a lab or they work in a large field-based experiment doesn't guarantee that they'll work for you. If you want to convince, persuade and influence people, you should run your own low-cost tests just like I did. Because let's face it, the last thing you should do is follow my advice blindly. Testing this stuff out for yourself and proving it works is vital. Okay, folks, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Now, I've spent a fair bit of time preparing for these episodes and running these tests. So if you enjoyed the show, please do go and share it with a friend or make sure you subscribe. That really helps the show grow. If you are a marketer, then I'd highly recommend picking up a copy of Nancy's book. I guarantee you'll read it and have at least a dozen ideas that you want to test. So if you want to pick up a copy of the book called Using Behavioral Science in Marketing, then do so. You can click the link in my show notes to go and buy a copy. At some point in the future, I'm going to do another podcast with Nancy where I'll run five more experiments and share the results. And as always, I promise to share whether those results are good or bad. I'm going to hold that podcast back for a few weeks or months because there are some other shows I'm really keen to share with you first. So if you want to make sure you don't miss that show when it comes out, then sign up for my newsletter. Um, and you'll get an email every single time a show goes live, including that show. So to do that, just go to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu to sign up. And finally, if you are in marketing and you want to learn more about these nudges, then you can go and check out my course, 
It is called the Science of Marketing course. It walks through how behavioral science can be used at each stage of the marketing funnel. It's got lots of content, which is very similar to what you heard today. So if you enjoyed today's episode, you'll probably enjoy that. So to check out that course and see if it's for you, go to nudgepodcast.com and click course in the menu. That's nudgepodcast.com and click course in the menu. All right, that is all. I'm Phil Agnew, your host, and have a wonderful rest of your week.